Romans 1, beginning in verse 1, says, Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to faith among the Gentiles of the nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to be able to hear the voice of God clearly. Lord, we pray that you would take away any distraction or anything within us or among us that would steal away from the seed of your word being sown into our hearts. And we pray that it would bear good fruit in our lives. Lord, bless your word and speak to our hearts through your Spirit's ministry this morning, we ask. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, one thing that is true about life is it presents all of us with sincere questions at times as we think through things. And those sincere questions that arise in all of our hearts as we navigate our way in our journey through this world, of course, then lead us to kind of search for answers. Some of them were simple questions. Some of those are really deep questions. But we find ourselves longing for answers to sincere questions that arise in our hearts. Well, I have good news for you, especially as we begin to study the book of Romans together, because the book of Romans really answers many important questions about God and man. For example, I jotted down some of just a few of the questions that we'll find answered in the book of Romans as we study through it in the weeks ahead as we move through the book of Romans together. And I jotted a few of them down, if you'll bear with me to just read some of them to you. Questions like this that will be answered. Questions like, what is God really like? What's God's plan for my life? Is Jesus really God? Uh, why is there the existence of evil in the world? The book of Romans will answer that. What is the central problem, therefore, with mankind? What's the central issue, the root problem in humanity? The book of Romans will answer that question for us. It will answer the question, why do people go to hell? It will answer the question, how can a person go to heaven? And how does a sinful person, which we all are, I don't think anyone would disagree with that, how does a sinful person become right with God? How do we make peace with God and know that we're acceptable to God and forgiven? Romans will answer that question for us. It answers questions like, is God pleased by my efforts to follow a religious lifestyle? If I just start doing things like attending church and maybe reading the Bible and saying prayers and trying to do some good deeds, is that what God's looking for and will that finally please him and will that ultimately make God then accept me and weigh out the scales and say, okay, enough good deeds, that religious lifestyle, that's sufficient and I'll accept you and you can enter into heaven? The book of Romans will answer that. It will clarify that reality for us. It tells us whether or not we do need to follow a list of rules and rituals to become right with God. And it will show us the reality of what grace really is. It will answer for us why faith in God and toward Jesus Christ, his son, is so important. It will show us that that is the essential thing that God is looking for for us to, as a sinful person, become righteous and acceptable to a holy God. It will answer the question, what is grace? It will speak a lot. This is a book about the grace of God and how is grace important and how do I apply grace to my life? It will answer questions like, what does God who created human beings and created sexual desire, what does God think about certain sexual expressions among humanity and sexual preference and sexual practice? The book of Romans will address that. It'll answer that question that I know everyone has. What about that guy on the island? 
in the middle of nowhere that nobody knows about and nobody ever gets to to tell about Jesus Christ. The book of Romans will answer that question. It will answer the question, why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ so important and so fundamental that he did indeed raise from the dead? And it will answer questions like, is it possible? Is it possible to get deliverance from life-dominating habits that we struggle with, that we know are destructive for our lives, that we know are sinful and wrong and yet dominate and control us and are harmful? And how can I actually experience the victory? How, how do I get that victory? Where does it come from? The book of Romans will answer that question. It will show us the answer to that. It will answer what the role of the Holy Spirit is in the life of the Christian. How about predestination? What about election? What about God's plan for the nation of Israel and the end times? The book of Romans will answer that. It answers practical questions regarding spiritual life too. Like once you become a Christian and start to follow Jesus Christ, well, how then do I live for God? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What's God's will for my life? And what about spiritual gifts? And as a Christian, what does God say about me and my relationship to the government? How about to the police department? What does God's word say about taxes? What does God think about debt? The book of Romans answers those questions. How about as a Christian, can myself and you as a fellow Christian, can we both love Jesus and fellowship and worship God together, but you have completely different strong convictions about secondary kind of gray areas that the scripture is not real clear about? Can we have different convictions? And if we do... How do we handle those different convictions that we have and still coexist together as brothers and sisters in Christ? Listen, if you stay on board and journey with us verse by verse through the book of Romans, those questions and others will be answered as we go through this book of Romans together. Now, just as sort of a quick backdrop to the book of Romans as we start a new study through this letter together, it's a letter clearly you can see in verse 1 written by Paul, Paul the Apostle, written historically probably sometime around 56 to 58 AD. And we know from various passages in Romans and in the book of Acts that Paul wrote this particular letter while he was in the city of Corinth prior to his time where he traveled to Jerusalem to bring an offering to support the suffering believers there. Rome, understand, was like the epicenter of the ancient world. It was like the big apple, if you would, of that day. And it was a strategic city. And because of that, Paul desired to go there with the gospel message because he knew it was a strategic city in the Roman Empire. He also knew it was an exceedingly sinful city, like many strategic influential cities, and that that city really needed the gospel of Jesus. And they needed to experience the life-changing power of Christ. And yet, despite his desire to go to Rome, it seems the door of opportunity for Paul had never opened to be able to get to Rome personally to do ministry there. In fact, if you look down in verse 13, if you'll draw your attention there, Paul says directly to these Christians in Rome, he says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. So Paul wanted to get to Rome. He had tried to get to Rome, but the door of opportunity had never yet opened, though he had the desire in his life. So since Paul had never been to Rome, that means that Paul didn't plant the church or whatever church is, if there were many, in the area of Rome himself like he did other fellowships that he writes letters to. So two possibilities how the gospel message and Christianity spread to Rome. One is, number one, that in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit's poured out at Pentecost and Peter preaches Christ to all those present, it says in Acts chapter 2 that there were visitors there from Rome. So there were people there who heard Peter preach about Jesus Christ and probably got saved and converted and then went back to their homeland of Rome as fellow Christians. And as a result, Christianity spread there and churches were planted there and God began to do a work in the area of Rome. Another possibility is in Acts chapter 18, we see Paul encounters a Jewish couple, a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. They're in Corinth, it says, who were from their homeland of Rome. 
And this couple had been forced out of Rome because of judicial proceedings in that area of Rome that caused Jews to flee in persecution, ended up in Corinth. Their fellow tent makers like Paul, they're working together with Paul making tents. Paul preaches the gospel to them. He shares Jesus with his fellow co-worker, as we all should do with those God puts us next to. He then disciples them, and ultimately they then probably depart from Corinth and go back to their homeland of Rome. We know that's possible as well as true, because at the end of this letter in Romans 16, when Paul gives a greeting to a whole bunch of different people there in Rome, he says, greet Aquila and Priscilla and the church that meets in their house. So this couple, no doubt, who came to know Jesus went back and maybe they, as a couple, were used by God to plant a church and one of the parts of the congregation was meeting in their house in a home gathering there. And Paul here has heard of the presence of believers in Rome. He wants to get there. He's planning to go there. He tells them in this letter he plans to visit, but he doesn't know when he'll actually get there. So he's moved by the Holy Spirit in the meantime to take his pen and to write a letter by the Spirit's inspiration to try and invest in these Christians there to help them grow and develop in the things of God. And unlike other letters, he does not address problems in the church like Corinth and in other places. He doesn't deal with specific issues. Instead, it really seems to be a letter that's intended to establish believers in their walk and their relationship with God to share with them things about God that they needed to know, to bring them into maturity in their faith. And it's probably one of the most deep and thorough doctrinal letters that we have in the entire New Testament. One man said that the book of Romans should be called the Constitution for the Christian Life. And I agree with that. It certainly represents that well, as it in a sense explains how you can become a citizen of heaven and follow King Jesus. It gives the framework of, in a sense, the laws of the spirit of life in Christ and how to live for Jesus and follow him. It explains to us the gospel of grace. And I tell you this, by reading it personally as I have and as we study it together, it is a book that if you read this book and understand this book, it will revolutionize your life. It will transform your life as you come into an understanding of the grace of God. Generally, the book kind of divides into, we could say, basically four main parts. You could divide it more thoroughly, but really four main parts we'll see in this book. Chapters 1 through 3, we see the bad news about sin. And Paul will spend three chapters speaking about the reality of how we are all guilty before God because we fail and make mistakes. There's no difference. We all sin and fall short. Doesn't matter if I'm the most pagan, wretched, rotten person in culture who does every vile, immoral, disgusting thing to man or if I am the most well-refined, religious person who goes to church and pays my money and puts in the stained glass windows and follows all the rules and rituals and observes every ordinance and does everything, Paul's going to say, look, if you are the most religious practicing person or you are the vilest human being on the earth, you still share something in common. You're a sinner. And you both need to be saved. And you both need to realize that you're not acceptable to God and Jesus has to forgive you and save you for you to get into heaven. And he'll show the bad news of sin. And then, of course, he'll talk about the good news, secondly, of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. From chapters 3, verse 21, through chapter 8, Paul then talks about the good news of the grace of God that freely offers to us forgiveness and salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, then he'll talk about the plan of God for Israel and humanity universally in chapters 9 through 11. And then fourthly, he'll talk about the will of God for a believer. He'll say, you know, therefore, chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, now that you know what God's done for you and you're a Christian, He's going to say, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service to God after all he's done for you. And he'll talk about the God's will for the believer and follower of Jesus. Look with me back in verse 1. Let's look at our verses together. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and separated to the gospel of God. 
So Paul begins by introducing himself to his readers, common in ancient letters. They put the introduction of who was writing the letter, the identification of the writer up front. And again here, notice in Paul's introduction of himself, he reveals that just like Jesus, he was a servant leader. You notice the terms that Paul uses to describe himself. The first thing he points out after his name is his first and foremost desire to live and to be known as a humble and a lowly servant. You see what he says with me there in verse 1? He calls himself a bond servant, verse 1, of Jesus Christ. A bond servant. It's that Greek word doulos. We've talked about it before. The doulos, we know from the Old Testament, was that willing slave or willing servant who chose of his own free will to basically surrender his rights to his master. It was someone who was a slave or a servant at a time, but came to a point in their life where they could be free and they could have their liberty and leave and go off and have their freedom to live how they pleased apart from their master's authority. And yet because of the love they had for their master, they willingly instead desiring to serve their master, choose to give up and forsake their rights to freedom to live on their own and instead by choice choose to become a slave. They choose to be a slave and to serve their master, to surrender their rights to the rulership of another. And this is how Paul viewed himself spiritually. He viewed himself as a bond servant, a willing slave, a servant by choice of Jesus Christ as his master. I tell you, Paul understood something, and that is simply this. Paul understood that the pursuit of life, listen, is not freedom. The pursuit of life is finding the right master. You know, we talk a lot in this world about wanting to be free, and oh, I have the freedom to do this, and I'm not tied down to that. I can, I don't, I can, I can do whatever I want. I'm free, man. I'm free to live however I please. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody's going to be in charge of me. And many pursue freedom to do and live how they please. And yet the reality is they end up becoming enslaved to all kinds of things. I'm free to do what I want. I can drink what I want, smoke what I want, snort what I want. And then ultimately, isn't it interesting? You're free to do that and now you've become enslaved by that. I'm free to express my sexual preferences and passions however I want. Nobody's going to tell me who... And then it's interesting, ultimately people then become enslaved to habits and relationships that are destructive. And so many times we think as human beings that we want freedom. And the reality is is our freedoms that we pursue to please ourselves and do what we want are the very things that then just enslave us anyway. Because the truth of the matter is we all serve something. Everybody does. We all serve something or someone and wisdom Hear me, wisdom just finds the right master. The key to being wise is finding the right master. Who is the right master to serve and the one to let rule over you? And I'll tell you this, as a Christian, I fully agree with Paul the Apostle. Jesus is a great master. He's a good master. He's a great master and you can give up your rights to Jesus And let him rule over your life and you will not regret it. You will not regret it. Because he's a wonderful master who lets us walk in freedom and liberty even as we're enslaved to serve him as our master. Notice Paul also humbly accepted by faith his commission from the Lord in spiritual service. He refers to himself in verse 1 not only as a bondservant but he says also Paul Paul, he says called to be an apostle. And that word apostle basically is a term which means one sent forth with authority. It's an authorized representative, an ordained ambassador or messenger, one sent with authority. That's what the word apostle means. And it was a term to describe in that day those who were God-ordained leaders in the early church, the apostles, the 12 that Jesus appointed. It seems later Paul became a 13th apostle in a sense as, as one recognizing that calling was from the Lord. And apostles, the Bible teaches us, had a few qualifications in the strict sense of the early church. They had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And they were used by God to write scripture and to establish the foundations of the early church. Ephesians 2 clearly tells us that reality. So in the strict sense, I don't believe that there are still apostles 
as there were in the strict sense of the early church. I even get a little uncomfortable when people have to, well, I'm, I'm an apostle, or I'm this, or I'm... I think that there's an apostolistic ministry, if you understand what I'm saying, that people can still fulfill, that God sends people out with authority to plant churches and to establish his works. But in the strict sense... Uh, these apostles were those with God-ordained authority in the establishment of the early church in the writing of Scripture. Paul says to himself, called to be an apostle, verse 1, separated to the gospel of God. Now, when Paul says separated to the gospel of God, he's reflecting on his spiritual calling as a man, how he came to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and how he knew that God had a plan for him to serve in the ways he did. See, God always had a plan for Paul's life. Even before he was born, Jeremiah says, before I was in my mother's womb, God, you knew me and you ordained me to be a prophet to the nations. And, and God has a plan for everyone's life. And Paul realized that God always had a plan for me to serve his purposes, to preach the gospel. Yet at a set time, God then orchestrated or implemented that plan in Paul the Apostle's life with his power. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 1 regarding this reality. He says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from a man, nor was I taught it, but it came to me through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard, Paul says, of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Paul says, that's what I used to be like. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, Paul says, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal a son of me that I would preach him among the Gentiles. See, Paul understood something. He understood, listen, God had his bullseye on my life, his target on me, his, his draft papers to draft me in to be his follower. He says, before I was ever born, he separated me. He knew exactly what his plan was for my life. And when it pleased God in his good time, he said, okay, Paul, now you're coming on board. Now you're coming on board. Paul. Enough kicking against the goads and resisting. That's it. We're taking all that passion, zeal, talent, energy, and effort you got for everything you're using it for and now we're using it for my purposes. And he drafted Paul and transformed his life and began to use him. And the Lord had selected Paul for a special purpose before birth and he later orchestrated him. Paul is the poster child for a transformed life. And God loves to transform lives. And you need to know this morning, the Lord has a unique plan and purpose for your life. For your life. As a young person, you need to realize at a young age, God has a plan for your life. He has a purpose for your life, a specific plan, something that pleases him. And he has separated you for something special. And you matter. Your life is valuable. God has a set purpose for your life and he wants to use it. This morning, you need to realize you can kick and resist and, and try and keep God off as long as you can. But the Lord is pursuing you and you're not going to win. And he's going to wrestle you into his kingdom. And the sooner that you realize it and say, all right, Lord, done with my plan. What's your plan? I tell you, at that moment, life really begins. As you realize that he separated you for a purpose and a plan. And then when you step into that, something marvelous begins to happen. Paul indicates he was called and separated. Verse 1, he says, to notice or for the ministry of sharing the gospel of God. You should circle that word there, gospel, the gospel of God. The word gospel just means good news. It's the announcement, the celebration, the good news about God or good news from God. The gospel in essence is the good news that though we are sinful, we all fail and our sins offend a holy God and deserve punishment and damnation in hell, yet God still loves us. And he loved us enough to make a way for us to be forgiven through the death of his son Jesus Christ on a cross and to have eternal life. And that is available by just receiving it, by placing our faith in Jesus as the Savior, appreciating what he's done and accepting his salvation and his lordship in our lives. In a sense, the gospel could be summarized as sort of a settled group of facts, a settled group of facts that are unchanging 
about the reality of how Jesus Christ is our Savior from sin. And it is this gospel of God, the gospel, that Paul will expand upon in great detail in the book of Romans. Here in the next few verses, we're told a few things about this gospel, this gospel of God. We're told a few things. We'll be told that its origin is divine. We'll be shown that it has a biblical basis. And thirdly, you'll see that it is a gospel that is all about Jesus. First of all, notice regarding the gospel that the gospel's origin is from God. Just look what he says again in verse 1. He calls it the gospel, look at the next two words, of God or from God. Its origin, the origin of the gospel message is God. It's God's idea. It's everything that stems from God. The origin of the plan of salvation is from God. The Bible tells us regarding Jesus in 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21, Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you through him now believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Revelation 13, 8 says Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. See, understand, the plan of salvation, the gospel, wasn't like God's audible up in heaven. Oh, I didn't realize that was going to happen. I got to get a recovery plan going on. That wasn't the case. God in his great love, seeing the fall of man, understanding all these things, already had set in motion what he was going to do to redeem and reconcile us back to him because of his love for us, because of his willingness to do whatever it takes. It has always been his idea. The origin of salvation is rooted in who God is and what God's offering. It's all about God and what he supplies. He supplies everything necessary. He supplies the power to perform it. The gospel's origin is of God. It's the good news about who God is, that he's a loving God, though he's a holy God. It's the good news that he's a giving God that would sacrifice his son and let his son die and be punished in our place for our sins. It's the good news about what God has done in his son, Jesus Christ, and what he's offering to us and able to do for those who come to him, which means this, by way of summary in that regard, that the gospel is all about God reaching you. It's not about you reaching God. See, many times, and this is the idea of religion, the word religion, relengare, in its root, means to relink. And there are people all over this planet walking around thinking, yeah, I got I to gotta get, gotta get relinked to God. I got to get an uplink to God. And so what do I got to do? What hoops do I got to jump through? What buttons do I got to push? What practices? What rituals? What, or, what they, I, I realize I'm separated from God, so I got to relink myself. Started in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve realized they were sinful when they failed God. And what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together to try and cover themselves because they felt ashamed and guilty because they knew that they weren't right with God because they had sinned. There's religion right away. We're not right with God. Let's make little fig leaves. Maybe this will cover the mess that we've made. And it says that God covered them with garments of an animal, which was the first sacrifice. It was shedding of blood. God was foreshadowing. Look, I, your works aren't acceptable. This is my thing. I will save you. I will forgive you. I'm going to reach you. I'm going to draw you back to myself. This is the glory of the gospel. It's the wonderful news how a God who is the one sinned against, that God becomes our savior. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Do you hear that? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Listen, this is the marvelous, what makes it good news of the gospel is we're not responsible to try and relink ourselves to God. Truth of the matter is, that's impossible. We can't relink ourselves to God. There's nothing I can do or you can do as a sinful person to make yourself acceptable to God. There's nothing that we can do to somehow cover our tracks or atone for our mistakes. or You can't save yourself from sin or hell. You can't even start a spiritual life. You have to receive those things 
from God who's offering it. God makes you acceptable by giving you his righteousness that's in the Son, Jesus Christ. God causes you to be born again by giving you spiritual life when you put your faith in Jesus. And as Jesus said in John 3, you're born again. You have a spiritual birth. A spiritual life begins when you receive that spiritual life from God as he gives it to you by your reception in faith. Again, if you're a note taker, you can jot in Titus 3, verses 3 to 7, and you can see more of that. Secondly, we also see that the gospel is not only origin is from God, but the gospel has a biblical basis. Look what Paul says in verse 2 regarding the gospel. He says, it's the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This good news of God's plan of salvation is something that's not new. Again, it's not a new idea. It has historical credibility. It is something all the way back from the Garden of Eden that has been predicted and promised by God. God was always for centuries promising through the prophets, through the scriptures, that he was going to send a savior, someone to save us because we couldn't save ourselves. From as early as Genesis 3.15, God has been promising that the prophets speak directly of Jesus' coming as a Messiah and a Savior. We've said before some over 300 specific predictions in the Bible of the first coming alone of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 7 said that he would be born of a virgin, and he was. Micah chapter 5 says that he'd be born in Bethlehem, and he was. 2 Samuel 7 said that the Savior would come through the lineage of of the family line of King David. And he did. Zechariah 9 spoke of the exact day and the way in which Jesus would reveal himself clearly to the Jews as the Messiah that God had sent. And Jesus did exactly that. Isaiah 53 speaks of his suffering for sin. Psalm 16 predicted and promised that he'd rise from the dead. And all throughout the Old Testament scriptures... All throughout them, Jesus is predicted and promised and portrayed. He's pictured in many of the Old Testament laws, in the feasts, in the Sabbath, in the sacrifices. We've been seeing these things on Wednesday nights in our study in the book of Exodus. All throughout the Old Testament, Jesus is portrayed in many types, in people like Moses who foreshadows him in many ways as a deliverer. He's portrayed in people like Joshua and David. Luke 24 tells us this, it says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded in them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then Jesus said, these are the words which I spoke to you while still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Hey, Jesus Testified, listen, when you read those Psalms, when you read the prophets, when you read the law of Moses, he says, that's all about me. It's all concerning me. It's not just religious rituals. and Yes, it was a literal thing that Israel was experiencing, but this book is divine because God was weaving through all the pages the portrayal, the revelation of a person, his son, and who he would be. And so when we study the word of God, especially the Old Testament scriptures, we need to realize they're intended to reveal Jesus and to call people to know Jesus, and to follow Jesus. Jesus himself said in John 5, to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. And he says, but yet you won't come to me and follow me. Hey, this means for us, personally, that is why there's value in studying the Old Testament. Do you ever notice your Old Testament's actually bigger than your New Testament? That's why we study the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, because it's integral to your Christian life. It's important to be able to see and learn things about Jesus Christ. And that also means this, because Jesus was promised for hundreds of years throughout the scriptures before he ever came and then he came specifically and perfectly, that means that your Christian faith has tremendous credibility. To follow Jesus Christ doesn't make you a brainless, naive person. It makes you a very intelligent person who understands that there were predictions specifically hundreds of years, thousands of years before these things ever came to pass and God promised them and God performed them and you know what? Therefore, I know, I know that Jesus is God. I know he is 
And it's totally credible to follow him as my Savior and my Lord. Thirdly, we also see that the gospel here in verse 3 is also all about Jesus. Because notice, concerning the gospel of God, Paul says regarding the gospel of God, verse 3, it is concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is what the gospel is about. The gospel is all about Jesus. It's the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's accomplished as our Lord and Savior and what he's able to do. The gospel is not about me and you. It's not about what we have to do or what we're doing. It's the good news concerning God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So a gospel ministry or a gospel message should be very focused on Jesus. Jesus should be the focal point of that. Acts 8, where Philip is preaching to a man who's looking for spiritual understanding, he sits down next to him in his chariot, and it says this in Acts 8.35. It says, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. I loved it. I think that's a phenomenal pattern. When you sit down and you have conversations with people and you want to share the gospel, I don't know how to share the gospel. I don't know. Listen, you just tell people about Jesus. You tell people who Jesus is. You tell people what Jesus has done in your life. If you're a Christian, you do know the gospel. Or maybe you better double check whether you're a Christian or not. Jesus, the gospel is about Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us why we need him and what he's done in our life and what we need to to follow. What a great pattern, using the scripture and preaching Jesus. Not preaching a church. Hey, I got this really great church. Not preaching, not patterns, not philosophies. Tell people about Jesus. Live for Jesus and tell people about Jesus. Jesus changes people's lives. People, churches don't change people's lives. Jesus changes people's lives. The gospel is concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is the good news. Paul goes on, verse 3, saying who of Jesus, he's going to speak about Jesus now. He says, regarding Jesus, he was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, verse 3, and then, verse 4, declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. That sounds like a mouthful. Basically, Paul there describes, if you notice, verse 3 and 4, both the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus in verse 3 and 4, showing how Jesus, the perfect mediator between God and man, was both God and man simultaneously in his existence. Being fully God and man, he therefore was perfectly in contact, it makes sense, with divinity, God, and with humanity at the exact same time. That's what made him the perfect bridge between God and man for reconciliation. The Bible teaches that God became a man. Not that a man became God, but that God became a man to reach humanity. He speaks of his humanity in verse 3. He says concerning Jesus, verse 3, he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. God in the person of his son Jesus, who was eternally existent, came and became a man and lived on this earth in a body of human flesh like you and I for a time. The purpose was to fulfill what was necessary for mankind and humanity to be saved and forgiven from their sin. As predicted in scripture, Jesus, it says, was born of the seed of David. That is, he was born a Jew. He's a Jewish Messiah. He was born of King David's family line, as was predicted. And the way that happened is the life of the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, was placed miraculously into the womb of a virgin named Mary. And then Mary, as a virgin, then gave birth to Jesus Christ, which began his life as a man so that he could experience humanity. And Jesus lived in a body of flesh and blood, for some 33 around years, experiencing everything that we do. Hebrews 2 says, In all ways he had to make like his brethren, so that he could make propitiation for our sins, and he himself being suffered when tempted is now able to help those who are tempted as well, as fellow humanity, because he lived a human existence. Jesus knows what it's like to be tired. Jesus experienced betrayal. Jesus experienced hunger and cold and loneliness and family difficulties. It seems that his, his stepfather Joseph died early and he probably was raised in a single parent family. 
Jesus understood all the things that we experience and the humanity of Jesus is good news because that means everything you're going through in life, though you might come and talk to me and I might not understand it, or though you may try and talk to your parent and they just can't understand it, or though you may try and talk to a friend and they just can't understand what you're going through, Jesus can because he lived in human flesh and he experienced everything we do and he says, because I've experienced it, I understand and I can help you. I experienced everything that humanity experiences. How wonderful that God doesn't stay aloof and distant, but he came and dwelt among us as a man, took a body of flesh and blood and lived in a body for a time period to be able to relate to us and to help us in every way and then allowed him to die perfectly as our substitute as our sins were put upon him as the sacrifice as he died in our place upon the cross and took the punishment human beings deserve for our sins. So he speaks of his humanity in verse 3 and then verse 4, his deity is referenced, the fact that he is God, that he's divine. Paul says he also was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The idea there declared to be the son of God means to be openly decreed. To be clearly announced or revealed as the Son of God, Jesus, read the Bible, claimed to be God. The Bible declares that he was God. Jesus received worship as only God would do. Jesus had the attributes of God in his life and performed the works of God and in such was revealed or clearly declared as being God, the Son of God. According, Paul says, to the spirit of holiness, which probably is a reference to the sinless life of Christ, that he remained body, soul, and spirit in a sense in a sinless state, which allowed him to be a perfect and suitable savior, that he was sinless. Unlike you and I, he lived the perfect sinless life that I can't, that you can't. We can't relate to that, but Jesus did what was necessary to satisfy the righteous requirements of a holy God. He lived as a man in a body of flesh sinlessly and therefore his life was acceptable to God. And therefore it's through Jesus and through his acceptable life that his shed blood, the holy sinless blood of Christ, can wash and cleanse us from our sin. It can cleanse us so that we can be acceptable before God. Paul says that he was also, verse 4, declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In other words... The greatest demonstration in many ways that Jesus was God and not just a man is the fact that he got up from death, that he defeated the death process and rose again, that God the Father is so fully satisfied with Jesus, raised him back to life to demonstrate that was sufficient. His sacrifice was sufficient. I am satisfied. And therefore he raised Jesus to be the Savior forever. Hebrews 7 says it this way, Therefore, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, unlike any other human being who's ever walked on this planet, Jesus overcame the death process. Jesus declared that he would defeat death and rise from the dead and then he exercised the power to perform it. You know, an atheist, a prominent atheist actually said this, I quote, an atheist said, has anyone ever beaten death? And if so, has he made a way for me? The answer is yes. His name's Jesus. He defeated the power of death, assured us of eternal life, and he's made a way if we come to God through him, the Bible says, because he's a risen living savior. That's why he can save presently. That's why he can do what he can do by his power in our life. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is not dead, a dead religious leader in a grave. He's a risen, living God and Savior who can work powerfully in your life as a risen Lord as you say, Jesus, save me. And he has the present life and power to do that, to help you in your life. Paul says, verse 5, through him we've received grace and apostleship, again, that's Paul's ministry, for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name. So Paul alludes to his spiritual calling from the Lord, again, to be an apostle. And notice that ministry and service, Paul says it's through him. 
He says, verse 5, it's for his name. He says, it's through Jesus. Again, notice, it's all rooted in Jesus. Through Jesus, he says, we've received grace, that is God's undeserved favor, his kindness that we don't deserve or merit, but yet he's gracious to us. We'll talk a lot about the grace of God as we go through the book of Romans. And Paul indicates it was God's grace that he found in Jesus and through Jesus. He says, it was through Jesus that I received apostleship, again, his ministry, to be a representative of the Lord. And notice that that gospel ministry, Paul says, was basically to call people to obedience to the faith among all nations. All nations. Showing the scope of the gospel is for all nations. It's, it's a universal message of hope and good news. It doesn't matter what someone's race is or skin color or their social status or their age or their gender. The gospel is a universal message of good news. It's the universal message of good news that it doesn't matter who you are and what your status is or where you've been or what you've done or what you've come from that God knows you're a failure. And he knows you've made mistakes and he knows you have guilt inside of yourself for things that you've done wrong that your conscience grates on you about. But God loves you. He loves you. And he wants you to have a relationship with him. And he wants to forgive you and he wants to take away your guilt. And he wants to erase and take that guilt off of your life and say, look, I'll forgive you. Let me take your guilt away. Let my son Jesus forgive you. Let my son Jesus save you and walk with me. And come and dwell with me in heaven forever. And have the life that God always intended for you to experience on earth and after you die. It's a universal message, but notice it is a message that must be responded to. Look with me, if you would, please, in verse 5, where Paul says he was to call people for obedience to the faith. Obedience to the faith. That refers to bowing the knee in trusting submission to the Lord Jesus. Obeying his call to the faith. Obeying his call to repent of sin and put faith in and follow Jesus Christ, I want you to please see and don't overlook that there is a decision. There's a response to the faith and the gospel message. There is a response and a decision that must be made to King Jesus. You can either refuse his salvation, you can refuse his lordship, or you can respond to it obediently by submitting and bowing your knee to him as the Savior and Lord. Again, saving faith always produces a response. And that is so important because a lot of times, well, yeah, I believe those things. Why have faith? I believe those things. Listen, saving faith evidences something. You can come in this room as you do on a Sunday morning and say, I believe this chair is going to hold my girth, my posteriors. As I sit down, I believe this chair is going to hold me up. I believe that. Well, look, it's not faith until you exercise that and you sit on that chair and you entrust yourself to what you say you believe. You can say you believe it all day long, but until you sit, that's not the exercise of faith. Faith is exercised, it's demonstrated. Same way with Jesus. God's not just saying, well, mentally assent. Yeah, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah, I believe I'm a Yeah, I believe that stuff. No, God's saying, in, have you entrusted yourself to it? Have you, have you personally exercised that faith and entrusted yourself in a sincere, genuine way before God? Not just mental facts, but entrusting yourself by exercising that faith in what God is offering and responding obediently to the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6 and 7, Paul concludes saying, Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are in Rome, Beloved of God, called to be saints, and then his typical greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace, cares, the, the Greek greeting, peace, shalom, the Hebrew greeting. And notice, Paul kind of became preoccupied here in the book of Romans about this gospel of God and about Jesus. But eventually here, down in verse 6 and 7, he finally comes to his, uh, in a sense, uh, identification of who the letter is to. He says, it's to all who are in Rome. And he refers to these believers by calling them beloved of God. The word is literally dearly loved ones. And he says, called to be saints. The idea is those identified as holy. It's hagios in the Greek, holy ones. And here we see two more things for believers of what the gospel proves. First of all, number one, that we are greatly loved of God. 
beloved, dear ones, beloved of God. Hey, this morning, I don't know what you're going through or what your week's been like, but, but you need to know something. God loves you. He loves you. Don't measure God's love for you by your circumstances. Measure God's love for you by looking at what Jesus Christ did for you as God sent him on your behalf. You're beloved of God. You're deeply loved. And despite whether you failed and made mistakes this week, saints are not little statues we put on our windshield. Or, saints are those who put their trust in Christ, the Bible teaches. They're righteous because they're trusting in Jesus Christ. And notice how Paul identifies those who are Christians and believers and how they became what they are. Verse 6, he says this. This is how they became followers of Jesus. He says, I love the language, you are the called of Jesus Christ. The called of Jesus Christ. That indicates they heard the call of Jesus and they responded to it at some point in their life. They heard Jesus say, follow me. And he called them. He said, follow me. And at some point, they chose to believe in who he was and they exercised their faith and they got up from what they were doing in their past and they followed him. They answered his call. I believe some of you today have been hearing the call of Jesus. Some of you who are already Christians and following Jesus, but Jesus is calling you to submit your life to his rulership like a bondservant. And to say, Lord, yeah, I've asked you to save me and forgive me, and, but I believe Jesus has been calling some of you in your life to transition to his bondservant and to say, you know what, Jesus? I want you to rule over my life. Jesus, I want to surrender my life and be separated to you in a way where I surrender my control. I freely willing, I surrender. Lord, I surrender. I want to surrender to your rulership. I encourage some of you this morning, if you're a Christian, if the Lord's been calling you to do that, that you would just surrender. Live for Jesus. Follow Jesus. Don't just say you're a Christian. Live as a Christian. Follow Jesus. Live for Jesus like his bondservant. And I believe there are some of you here this morning as well that Jesus has been calling you to answer the gospel of God and to accept Him as Savior and Lord. And He's been calling you. Maybe He's been lighting up your phone quite a bit. And He's been knocking. I'm going to get it in a minute. I'm going to get it in a minute. Let that one roll into voicemail. I'll get it next time. Listen, every time you don't answer the call of God to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. You desensitize your heart more and more and more. And what's very loud and clear when you know you need to be saved and you know you need to follow Jesus and you want to so bad, but yet you're resisting and resisting and resisting. As you resist it more, his voice becomes fainter and fainter. Jesus is calling. Answer. 